The passage on which today's lesson is based will be the whole of 1 Samuel 17, but I will be reading verses 32 through 51. You can also read along on page 7 of your bulletin. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been fighting. He has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is the word of the Lord. If, you haven't, if you've been looking around, you know that our church is growing rapidly. <clears throat> every year since, uh, as an example, every year since the start of 2020, um, more than 40% of our congregants here um, ha have been here less than a year. And so it's very important uh, to know, to remember the gospel foundations on which this church is built. 
Now, <clears throat> you have to know that uh, at the end of chapter 16, when the Spirit of God flooded into David's life, it made him bold. In other words, David didn't become king because he was bold. He became bold. It's important because even though we live in a most technologically, most educationally, maybe even the most socially uh, uh, advanced culture uh, in the world, in world history, we're more anxious than ever. And this passage shows us the key to real courage. If you're newer visiting today, uh, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament that demonstrate or show how God works through suffering and thus showing us how God can work through our suffering and our fears and our weaknesses with the underlying theme of the building of character, real, genuine character. And this text is probably one of the most past, famous, if not the most famous passage in all the Old Testament. So we're going to be looking at three things. One, what is courage? Two, why do we lack courage? And lastly, how do you get sustaining, lasting courage? What is it? Why do we uh, lack it? How do you get it? First, we're going to look at what is courage. Verse 1, and if you don't have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along with me. Otherwise, you're just going to have to listen intently to me walking you through the whole of chapter 17, which is what we're going to be doing. Verse 1, the Philistines, they gathered their forces for war. And in verse 2, Saul and the Israelites, they assembled, they camped in the valley of Elah to meet the Philistines. So in verse 3, you have the Philistines on one side, on one hill. You have the Israelites uh, on the other with a valley that that uh, sustained between them, they're enemies. And so this is that valley of the shadow of death. It's a gruesome thing. A lot of people died there. And in verse 4, in that valley, you have Goliath. Goliath, he shows up, and he's a giant. In verse 10, he challenges the, uh, the Israelites, and he says, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, and let us fight each other. Well, in verse 11, upon hearing this, Saul and all the Israelites, they were dismayed and terrified. That's what the text says. Saul's a king. Saul's a king. The Bible describes him as having no equal uh, among, among the other Israelites. He was a head taller than all the others, but he's paralyzed by fear. He's paralyzed with fear. Why? Because Goliath, this, this giant, he's taller Saul so focused on the externals. He relied on the externals. And so once he meets somebody who has greater externals, now he's cowering with fear. This is a king, and he is not kingly. His army is not kingly. Verse 16, 40 days go by, and not a single person comes forward. Whenever you see the number 40 in the Bible, it represents a condition, a state uh, a period of trial and wilderness. So you have all of Saul and all the Israelites. They're in this condition, this state of being in the wilderness. They're in darkness. They're there, there's a whole shadow, a cloud of fear that has enveloped their lives. Remember Noah? Reigned for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember Israel in the desert? They were wandering the desert for how long? For 40 years. It's this period of, of darkness and wilderness. In other words, our human condition our human condition is a state of fear. We live in anxieties. Our world shrinks to the, to the side, size, really, of, of our worries a lot of times. 
And so, uh, and these are the, against the giants in our lives. So, so what is courage? David in verse 32, he says, let no one lose heart. Why? Because everyone saw the king, the armies, everyone has already lost heart. In verse 11, they said they were terrified. So in verse 24, you see that they fled from Goliath in great fear whenever he stepped out from the lines and challenged them. In Hebrew, what, what David says is, let no one's heart fail him. Let no one's heart fall away from him and let no one's heart give in or run away from them. Let you not lose your heart. In other words, <clears throat> David is saying, let no one lose courage. Let no one be dis." Encouraged. Why did they run away whenever they saw Goliath? Why did they run away whenever they heard Goliath's thundering voice? Because if you're selfish and you run away, you may be safe. But sometimes, sometimes if you do the right thing, if you were unselfish, regardless the outcome, whether, whether or not you're going to be safe, that's courage. The ancients, they knew that you can't live without courage. Why? Because there were diseases, there were wars everywhere. There was danger everywhere, but think about it. Then you still need courage, why? Because there's still disease, I mean, we know it. There's still diseases, there's still wars. I mean, we know that too. There's danger everywhere. Every time, I mean, we don't have to look macro in our lives. Every time, you let the pressure of your friends or the pressure of your family, your parents, or the pressure of your work, the pressure of financial trouble, the pressure of your relationships, or just maybe your own plain selfishness. Every time, every moment that you let fear dictate a single moment of your life, the Bible says you are a coward. And most of us, if we're honest, we live out of fear. Now, there are people in this room that say, well, no, I mean, I don't wake up quaking. I'm not really afraid. The greatest nightmares in our lives, the greatest nightmare in your life is not physical death. For most of us, that's not what we're afraid of. We, we've done so much to kind of block that danger out, most of us. Usually, the greatest nightmare in our lives is humiliation, a loss of our reputation the loss of the approval of someone you just deeply, deeply uh, need approval from, the loss of your loved one, a tragedy that could lose, uh, where you lose your livelihood or you lose those you love, that is your defeat. I mean, there are parents in this room that are just so afraid of losing ground in their work that they overwork, and because they overwork, they end up losing connection with their family. They end up losing connection with their children. That fear of losing wealth, that fear of losing your status is more important than, losing, than gaining or having connection with your child. Now, some of you, you, can't, you just can't say no to your boyfriend. You just can't say no to your girlfriend. Or you can't say no to your spouse. Or maybe you can't say no to your children. Or you can't say no to your bed or to your couch or to your food or to your diet or to your professor or to your grades or to your boss or to your bonus or to your guilt, or to your shame, 
or to your pride or to your past hurts. And these are the reasons why we don't go to God, that we don't go deeper with God or go deeper with the church because it's made us self-absorbed. That fear has made us turn inward and self-absorbed and self-centered, all because of fear. And, and so we're not able to draw from the richness that Jesus and his gospel invites us into in shapes. Why? Because our fears make us myopic. It makes us myopic. You only see yourself. You only think for yourself. That's Saul. That's Israel. That's us. The essence of real courage is confronting the greatest nightmares in your life and doing the right thing anyway, doing what God calls you to anyway. That's the definition of courage. That's what it is. Now, secondly, why do we lack it? I used to think that, wow, well, David must have been braver. David, he must be the hero. But verse 4, the text, if you actually read the early part of chapter 17, it actually says that it's Goliath that's the champion. What that means is that in actuality, both Goliath and David, they're heroes. Both of them have courage, just in opposing ways. Robert Alter, he's one of the most notable Hebrew Bible scholars currently alive, living today, uh, among the secular, among the liberal, among conservatives. He's very well respected. I mean, even though he's a liberal professor, uh, the conservatives, they all read his stuff. Um, he says this, he says regarding this passage, it is atypical to spend this amount of time describing the size of a warrior or the kind of armor he wears anywhere else in the entire Bible the way you see in verses four to seven. The author describes his height, it's six cubits, the bronze helmet and the coat of bronze scale armor that weighs around 5,000 shekels, that's around 125 pounds today, 125 pounds alone, that's just this armor. The bronze on his legs, the bronze javelin and the spear shaft with an iron point. A lot of space is dedicated to Goliath's height and it represents his power and his strength and his abilities. And it says that Goliath is taller than everyone. He's their champion. That means that he's trained and he's educated and skilled in battle. He's experienced. Lots of detail. Why? Remember, Saul was tall. And yet he failed. David's eldest brother, Eliab, in chapter 16, if you were here last week, he was tall. And Samuel, Samuel and Jesse, they're just smitten by his height. But God says, he is not going to be king. He is not the hero that I'm looking for. What does that mean? In fact, 1 Samuel 17 almost mimics the previous chapter in a sense. In chapter 16, verses 1 to 11, Samuel comes to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king. Who would it be? What do you see? The three eldest sons are lined up. First, it's Eliab. Then it's Abinadab. Then it's Shammah. And they looked apart. They look like heroes. They look like warriors. They look like leaders. And David's the youngest. He's referred to as, oh, that's just that guy. He's the youngest. He's just tending to the sheep, not even invited to the table. One chapter later, in verses 12 to 15, it's almost like a summary of the previous chapter. The three eldest sons of Jesse, once again, they follow Saul to war. That's what the text says. The firstborn is Eliab. The second is Abinadab. The third is Shammah. And David, again, is the youngest. Again, just that guy out there. And it says that he, uh, he is basically, he's still overlooked. While the oldest 
uh, three sons, they go to be with Saul because they looked the part. They look like warriors. They're fighters. They're trained. They followed Saul to war. The firstborn Eliab, the second Abinadab, the third Shammah. David is like an errand boy going back and forth, tending to the sheep while running errands for their brothers. You know what that means? Even after he was anointed, even after God had chosen David, he was still overlooked. No one believed but verse 16, you have Goliath, he's taunting the Israelites for 40 days. And in verse 23 to 24, Goliath, he shouts the usual defiances. When the Israelites, when they saw Goliath lined up every morning, when they saw Goliath, they all ran. And that's the point. No one, not the king, not Saul himself, not the soldiers, none of David's eldest brothers, no one who looked the part had the courage. We are obsessed with the externals. And that's why courage is lacking. Because think about it. Who is like Goliath? Goliath represents the natural way that we get courage. How? One, by relying on your gifts, by relying on your skills and the externals. Goliath was tall. Saul relied on his externals. Saul was tall. Saul was tall. So when he sees Goliath who's taller, he's afraid. I mean, that's how Saul got there. That's how he got chosen to be king. He was tall. Verse 33, King Saul says to David, you can't beat him. Look at him. You're a boy. He's experienced and talented and skilled. David, no one even cared about David's gifts. No one cared about his strengths. But then in verses 34 to 37, David says, but I killed a lion. I killed a bear. I learned over time. God has been shaping me in the field where no one cared, where I was completely disregarded. God had been shaping David to kill things that were much bigger than him, kill things that were much faster and stronger than he was. David learned instinctively to defend his people, to defend the things that he loves, to protect the things that he loves. Goliath is tall. But the author points out that he's six cubits in height. To us, that means eight feet. That's tall. To us, when we see Goliath, he's a tall man. But the number six means incompletion, imperfection. So when David goes out there to the line and sees David, sees Goliath, he just sees a man. And he's killed much bigger things. Secondly, Goliath relies on his armor. Goliath is relying on his weaponry. Goliath was trained since he was a boy, and David, he's just a boy. So in verse 38, Saul places his tunic and his armor and his helmet over David. And in verse 39, David, he's, he's clumsy and he's trying to walk around. David says, I can't go in these. I mean, he's poor, untrained, vulnerable, primitive. So in verse 40, he's got a staff and he's got a sling. And that's what he takes into battle. Verse 43, Goliath. I mean, this is an advanced person who's got advanced technology, advanced armor, advanced weaponry. He sees David. And he is ready for battle. He sees David and he says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Goliath's gifts and his advancements, they gave him courage. In verse 42, he says that Goliath looked David over. He was sizing him up. And he's thinking, I'm twice his size. 
I'm more advanced, I'm more experienced, I'm stronger. Nowhere in the text does it imply that Goliath had any fears. He was filled with confidence. He sees no danger here, and that's the issue. We believe that confidence is built on externals, how you look, what you make, what you do, where you were born, who you were born under. We believe it's all about the externals. That's what gives us confidence. Your strengths, your education, which, how you've been trained, and who you studied under, where you studied, the advancements. The problem is that Goliath was blind to the one thing that he needed to win, the one thing that he needed to survive, an accurate view of reality. Because he relied on the externals, because he only saw what was visible, he overlooked the invisible. He overlooked the real realities, the real dangers as a result. I mean, David, he was aware. He was walking into the valley of the shadow of death. What does fear do? Real fear, although it's disproportionate, that's what makes it a fear, it wakes you up to realities. Everyone has Goliath-like fear. Everyone has something that is their greatest nightmare. I mean, we often try to battle these fears by being like Goliath, essentially. We do that by building. I got to accumulate. I got to build my life. I got to build with greater wealth and greater titles. I got to keep moving up. Some of us, we say, well, not me. I don't have major career ambitions. I just want to be a good mom. Yeah, you want to have children. That's how you're building. You want a perfect home. That's how you're going to protect yourself. You see that? That's how you're going to increase your potential. Because if I have perfect kids, a nice family, a good home, a good job, a great career, I will be respected. Some of you, it's about reputation, how you're looked upon by people around you. All these other people that I grew up with, they're doing great. I got to do just as well. I got to keep up with that. That is your armor. Oh, we pay a huge price for that, don't we? We pay a huge price to get the right armor, to get the right weaponry. Then we are invincible, we say. But that kind of courage, according to the Bible, will never help you do the right thing in the midst of great pressures. Putting courage in things like your marriage or your family or your job, those things will actually extort you of courage. And even all the while, it's going to make you work and work and work to maintain some semblance of security. The Bible says courage is built around, a courage that's built around externals will never deliver. It will always be insufficient. Why? Because the real giants that you have to face in your life, these are things that you can't see that creep up. Things like aging. No amount of money, as much as you think, as good as your skin is, No amount of money will protect you from that. Illness, I mean, we've seen over the last several years, there's nothing you can do to protect yourself from the illnesses that will actually get you in the end. The loss of loved ones and tragedy, there's no amount of education that will ever be able to shield you from tragedy or from death. Your wealth and your looks, your intelligence and your education, your marriage, your home, your family, these things cannot protect you from from the real things that are actually going to get us in the end. On one hand, you don't want to disengage from your fears because then you're actually like Goliath. You're going to be blind to the realities when you need reality to respond. 
But on the other hand, you need something bigger that's going to overwhelm your fears, that it's going to empower you to respond, to empower you to act. Where did David get that kind of courage? Where did he get that? It says in verses 45 to 47, David says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, I grew up being taught that this passage means you have to work to have a faith like David. You guys get taught like that growing up? You got to have a faith like David. David just trusted God. David just believed God and he just trusted God. And then God's going to work. God worked in his life, gave him the courage, and that's how you handle the great giants in your life. But that's, that's just a religious version of Goliath's courage. You see? What do I mean by that? If you're looking at yourself and you're saying, well, if I just trust God, if I just do all the things that God wants me to do, so I just obey, then God's going to help me. Then God's going to protect me around the things that I'm afraid of so I can get where I want to go. Well, then you're just using God as your armor. It's just another religious version of the kind of armor that Goliath had. We call that sacrilege. You're still trying to deal with fear on your own. And your armor is obedience. Your armor is your goodness. Or maybe some of us, like, I just have the right theology. You're still relying on yourself. You're trying, to, you're trying to be like David, but you're actually like Goliath. It's why just obeying actually turns you away from God at times because you'll soon, you'll soon learn and you see and you experience over life that suffering is the norm. Danger is the norm. And you feel, though, like as if God has failed you. I mean, look at Jesus. If you want to think about this logically, we're Christians, most of us in this, in this room. If you look at Jesus, he is the most obedient person ever to have ever walked the earth. He obeyed God, prayed to God, trusted God, acknowledged God in all things. He was faithful to God. And did everything go well for him? No. You know what he got for that? He died. He went to the cross. So the lesson can't be be like David. What's the lesson? How do you get real courage? The biggest mistake that you can make in reading this text is to say you need to try to be like David. You need to come to grips first with the reality that we are Saul. We are the army of Israel. We are fearful. We are cowards all the time. We can't get through one day without making a decision that's been built around fear, some fear of disapproval or a fear of suffering or some fear of loss or defeat. So in those cases, we, standing along those battle lines, not being able to move, we need somebody like David to rescue us. We need our version of David to go into the valley of the shadow of death for us. We can't be like David, so we need a David. One, David was weak, and he was inexperienced. He's untrained. He's refusing armor. But his victory came not in spite of weakness, but because he was weak, because of his weakness. And secondly, this is the key. Uh, David is Israel's representative as a result. He is Israel's substitute. 
Goliath says in verses 8 to 9, choose a man and have him come down to me so they can fight each other. In ancient times, you chose one man. That person was going to represent your entire nation. He was the legal representative of your nation. You called him your champion. In other words, David was going into the valley as Israel's warrior, as their champion. So he's not just fighting for Israel. He represents Israel. He's fighting as Israel. It's why Goliath says, if he kills me, we will become your subjects. That's what he says. So if David's courageous, then Israel is courageous. They're courageous. If David goes into the valley to fight, they have gone into the valley to fight. And if David wins, Israel wins. In other words, what happens to David is transferred to David's people. That technical term is called imputed, imputation. What happens to David is transferred. It's imputed to his people. It's very important. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 13, the author says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That word author is a Greek word, archegos. And the root word for uh, the uh, author and perfecter of our faith, the root word for perfecter is teleos. So what is an archegos? What is an arch ego? Well, an arch rival is what? It's the greatest version of your enemy. That's your arch rival. Well, that's what an arch rival is. Then what's your arch ego? It's the greatest version of yourself. It's your substitute. The arch egos is a Greek word that means your champion. And the word perfecter, right? That root word teleos, teleoten, that means finisher. So David was their champion, and he was their finisher. He finished the victory that was earned through his weakness, that God worked through his weakness, because the Lord fought for him. Well, we have an even greater champion than David. Just like David was to Israel, Jesus Christ is our legal representative. He is the greater David. He is the ultimate David. David was a king, but that king that came in weakness, well, Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. He is our warrior, born in weakness. He was born in a manger, not on a throne. And on the cross, he emptied himself of all of his armor. David said, I can't go in these. So he empties himself of the armor that Saul tried to put on him. Jesus Christ on the cross empties himself of any armor, and he becomes ultimately weak. And he doesn't save us despite our weakness. He doesn't save us despite his weakness. He saves us through his weakness. And he saves us not from physical slavery or physical death, but from eternal slavery, the slavery of sin, the eternal death because of our sins, the sins that drive our fears. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, where we had perfect relationship with God. When we were in the garden, everything was perfect. There was no fear. We were one with God. We were walking with God. But when we chose to rebel against God, when we chose to sin against God, take matters into our own hands, we said, hey, I could do this better. I want to do more. I can get more on my own. 
The moment we chose to rebel against God, we lost the relationship with God that gave us all the security that we experienced anew. And so as we were cast out of the Garden of Eden, we lost all of our security. And so fear, our lives have been characterized. Our condition is characterized by fear. You see that? So there's a slavery to fear. Jesus Christ saved us, not from physical death and slavery, but from an eternal death and an eternal slavery. David, he saved his people at the risk of his life, but Jesus Christ, he saved us at the cost of his life. David, he went into the valley of death, but it was a mere shadow. Jesus Christ, he begins his ministry. He endures the wilderness for how many days? 40 days he was in the wilderness after he was anointed. He was weak. And at the end of his life, then he goes into the ultimate valley, the ultimate wilderness, and he wins through his weakness. He suffers humiliation and suffering and blood and defeat, and he was crucified and dead and buried, and everything seemed lost. Why? On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins, our fears, our sins that drive our fears, our weaknesses. David, he had the presence of God, and that's how he won. But Jesus Christ on the cross, he loses the presence of God. He loses the Father. He was forsaken by the Father. He was experiencing his ultimate nightmare, the ultimate nightmare. The ultimate defeat is what? The ultimate hell is what? Being totally separated from God. And Jesus was experiencing that on the cross. And yet, do you know, at Gethsemane, right before he went to the cross, knowing what was about to happen, he said, my soul is troubled to the point of death. In other words, there was fear. He was entering into the valley, and yet he still did. He prays, not my will, yours be done. He demonstrated ultimate courage. Obey God's will to the end. In the wilderness, at Gethsemane, on the cross, he did the right thing. He obeyed God's will to the end. To the end. And so when he went to the cross, he cries out, it is finished. That word, you see it again. The root word is teleos. The telestai. The debt is paid. The price has been paid. Another way of saying that is, it's over. I've won. I finished it. After Goliath was struck, in verse 51, David takes Goliath's own sword and chops off his head. And in verse 54, he brings it to Jerusalem. In other words, David used Goliath's greatest weapon to destroy him. Goliath's greatest weapon was what? All that armor, that sword of his. No one could hold it. On the cross, Jesus Christ used Satan's greatest weapon. Death. Gets us all. Jesus Christ uses death to defeat death once and for all. He is the author and the perfecter. He is the champion and he is the finisher. He faced a gigantic wrath of God, the ultimate Goliath. None of us would be able to stand. And he defeated him on the cross as our representative.
as our substitute. Because he fought, we fought. Because he was courageous, we are courageous. Because he died, we died with him. Because he rose, we will rise with him. Because he won, we won. We call that union. Union with Christ. Look to the beauty of Jesus. Look to the courage of Jesus. In any moment when there is fear, look to the courage of Jesus on the cross. How did he do it? I mean, when he was alone on the cross, there was complete darkness. Everyone has abandoned him. God has forsaken him. How did he do it? When he was suffering and bleeding and dying, how did he do it? What sustained his bravery? Hebrews chapter 13 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the ark, egos, and the teleos of our faith, who for what? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That means while all this was going on, Jesus had joy. Why? What was his joy? What was the joy that was worth all the suffering and humiliation and bleeding and death? You were. And to the degree that you trust this, that you are his joy, Isaiah chapter 53 the prophet Isaiah says that one day the suffering servant will come and as he is pierced for our transgressions, he will look out and be satisfied. He will have joy when he sees all that will be saved. To the degree that you trust that you are his joy, you are his deep satisfaction. That means on the cross, he's bleeding and dying and everyone's left him. God has forsaken him and he's thinking about you and it made him joyful. He's thinking about the glory of God through what would happen as he obeys in saving you. And that made him happy. That made him joyful. To the degree that you trust this, that you are his joy, that sustained his courage to the glory of God, he can become our joy. He can become our courage in the face of all of our troubles. Because then every other nightmare is much smaller, is much smaller than the ultimate nightmare that Jesus endured. And every other fear is merely walking into the valley of the shadow of death because Jesus Christ endured the actual death. You see that? Then you can face your fears. When you see Jesus in the ultimate valley, you're in the valley with him. That's union. And he won, so you won. But now, when you are in the valley, you know that he is with you. He is with you, and you can endure to the end. Do you trust that, church? Friends, do you trust that? Let's pray together.